thank you for joining us for the study of God's Word today. Grab a Bible and listen carefully as God will be speaking to us through His Word today. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Our text this morning is in Philemon. If, the, if you have the opportunity, please turn there. We'll be talking about verses 15 until, until the end. It's a challenging text. It's a challenging text because Paul finally gets to the point. He makes his big ask, his intense appeal. Loving people has a cost. What cost are you willing to pay? Paul asked Philemon, what costs are you willing to pay because of love? And that's what I want us to be considering ourselves to this morning. Loving people has a cost. What costs are we willing to pay? Let's recap real quick. In the first week of this series, we talked about being in Christ, that in Christ we are family. Who we are determines what we do. We are in Christ. Jesus is our Lord and our Master. And because of our relationship in Christ, God is our Father. The result of that, us having the same Father, the same boss, the same dad, that means that we are family with each other. We're siblings. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. The next week, we talked about who do we belong to? And the answer... I believe for most of us, hopefully all of us, would be that we belong to Jesus. We concluded that week on the basis of the love that Christ had by dying for my sin. I belong to Christ, so I will love with guts. I will love with courage and kindness. Today, as we go through the passage, We'll have our sermon in three portions. The first portion is the context. Slavery is the occasion. It's the situation for this book. And we'll need to talk about it some this morning. That's the context. Then we'll talk about the text. The key phrase here is beloved brother. So let's remember that phrase throughout, beloved brother. And finally, we'll conclude with some applications primarily having to do with reconciliation. Let's read the text and pray, and then we'll get to it. For this, perhaps, is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So, If you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he he has wronged you at all or owes anything to you, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner and 
Christ Jesus sends greetings to you. And so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Father, thank you that you sent your Son to reconcile us to yourself. That he paid the cost. You loved us. We didn't deserve your love. We had rebelled against you in sin. And yet, because of your love for us, you sent your Son to die for us. I pray, O oh Lord, that as we learn about the intensity of what Paul is asking Philemon to do towards Onesimus, I pray that we would have the courage, the faith, to do the same in the tough ways that you may be calling us to in our own lives. Lord, that courage comes from love, not from fear of you, not from a terror of what will happen if we don't, but because you have loved us. And so, Lord, I pray for your Holy Spirit to come this morning and that it would impress, that he would impress on my heart, that he would impress on our hearts the great magnitude of your love for us in Christ Jesus so that we can love each other in the same way. Let's talk about slavery. Like I said, slavery is the situation. This is the key contextual situation for this whole book of Philemon. The term doulos is found one in 118 verses in the New Testament. Doulos is the Greek term that is usually translated and should usually be translated as slave. Uh, you'll find oftentimes in the ESV that they translate it as servant or bondservant. And while the term doulos can have that sense or that connotation, the main use in that time was this idea of slave. Slavery was a, a key part of the Roman Empire. It just was a reality. Richard Milek, in his commentary, said, ethical issues of harsh treatment of slaves at the time, that first century of Rome, the ethical issues were debated. And even as the institution was common throughout the Roman Empire, the population of Rome itself, he said, may have been as much as one-third slaves. So the capital of the whole empire, the capital itself may have been one-third by population slaves. At the time, Christianity did not have the social influence to change Roman society by abolishing slavery. So we're talking about Paul's letter. It's a personal letter involving a, a family household matter has to do with slavery. Christianity, remember at this time, is just barely branching out, just barely reaching Rome itself. And so it didn't have the influence to make much of a difference in this horrible situation of slavery. There had been recent bloody uprisings, and the Roman legislature was adjusting to provide some minimal protections for slaves, legally speaking. And when I say that, I mean that prior to that, a master could at will not only punish, but simply kill his slave should he so desire. With the dehumanizing, outrageous mentality of what slavery is, that person was actually considered property of the owner. And if the owner so wanted, he could simply destroy his property. And that had been part of the reason it was so brutal that 
around this time, around the, coming into the first century, Roman law was adjusting a little bit so that a master had at least, he was required to check with the governing authorities, the local authorities, before executing a slave. He could still do so. He could still choose to execute his slave for whatever reason, but he had to at least check and get permission from the local authority. So just think, that's the extent of your human rights, that someone has to check with someone else before killing you. And so you can imagine that, well, in some situations there may have been masters who were good to their slaves, who treated them well, and maybe some of these slaves had high status in the household. You can imagine that oftentimes there was great brutality. So in light of this is the cultural situation in the first century, a small and rapidly growing religious sect, if this Christianity were to actively speak against slavery, Christians would likely have incurred swift persecution and even extinguishment from the authorities. They didn't want any more uprisings. One other observation that I want to make about first century Roman slavery was that it was not race-based. Our experience with slavery and our history as a nation, even our history as a denomination, the Southern Baptist Convention, is that slavery was race-based. And as intimidating as it is to speak on this topic, and I, I want to be, I don't want to be presumptuous to speak as I speak about this because I don't have a lot of personal direct experience with racism. And there may be many in the room who have more direct experience. So I want to be humble in that regard. And in light of that, I thought that it would be appropriate to think, okay, the historical context, the cultural context of writing of this letter. When we interpret scripture, we look at what did the text mean at that time to those people. So that's part of what I want to explain. And we've talked about some slavery, some back then. Slavery, as our country experienced it in more recent times, our country is not that old, we have our own concept of it. And I think it's important for us to, as we're receiving this text, be able to apply it in our setting. The Southern Baptist Convention in 1995 issued this resolution. And it made national news. Resolution on Racial Reconciliation on the 150th anniversary of the Southern Baptist Convention, June, June 1st, 1995. Whereas, since its founding in 1845, the Southern Baptist Convention has been an effective instrument of God in missions, evangelism, and social ministry. And whereas the scriptures teach that Eve is the mother of all living, and that God shows no partiality, but then every nation, whoever fears him and works righteousness, is accepted by him. And that God has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth. And whereas our relationship with African Americans has been hindered from the beginning by the role that slavery played in the formation of the Southern Baptist Convention. And whereas many of our Southern Baptist forebears defended the right to own slaves and either participated in, supported, or acquiesced in the particularly inhumane nature of American slavery. And whereas 
In later years, Southern Baptists failed in many cases to support, and in some cases opposed legitimate initiatives to secure the civil rights of African Americans. And whereas racism has led to discrimination, oppression, injustice, and violence, both in the Civil War and throughout the history of our nation, and whereas racism has divided the body of Christ and Southern Baptists in particular and separated us from our African American brothers and sisters, and whereas many of our congregations have in intentionally and or unintentionally excluded African Americans from worship, membership, and leadership, and whereas racism profoundly distorts our understanding of Christian morality, leading some Southern Baptists to believe that racial prejudice and discrimination are compatible with the gospel. And whereas Jesus performed the ministry of reconciliation to restore sinners to a right relationship with the Heavenly Father and to establish right relations among all human beings, especially within the family of faith, Therefore, be it resolved that we, the messengers of the sesquicentennial meeting of the Southern Baptist Convention, assembled in Atlanta, Georgia, June 20 to 22, 1995, unwaveringly denounce racism in all its forms as deplorable sin. And be it further resolved that we affirm the Bible's teaching that every human life is sacred and is of equal and immeasurable worth made in God's image, regardless of race or ethnicity, and that with respect to salvation through Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for we are all one in Christ Jesus. Be it further resolved that we lament and repudiate, repudiate historic acts of evil, such as slavery, from which we continue to reap a bitter harvest. And we recognize that the racism which yet plagues our culture today is inextricably tied to the past. And be it further resolved that we apologize to all African Americans for condoning and or perpetuating individual and systemic racism in our lifetime. And we genuinely repent of racism of which we have been guilty, whether consciously or unconsciously. And be it further resolved that we ask forgiveness from our African American brothers and sisters acknowledging that our own healing is at stake, and be it further resolved that we hereby commit ourselves to eradicate racism in all its forms from Southern Baptist life and ministry, and we commit, be it further resolved that we commit ourselves to be doers of the word by pursuing racial reconciliation in all our relationships, especially with our brothers and sisters in Christ, to the end that our light will so shine before others that they may see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven. And finally, be it resolved that we pledge our commitment to the Great Commission task of making disciples of all nations, confessing that the church God is calling together will one people from every tribe and nation, and proclaiming that the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ is the only certain and sufficient ground upon which redeemed persons will stand together in restored family union as joint heirs with Christ. Like I said, this is an intimidating topic to speak on, and I do not want to be presumptuous to speak on a topic in which I have very little personal experience, especially in a room where many others may have much more knowledge and experience. That being said, I felt that it would be a disservice to this text to avoid discussing slavery, both in the first century and in our history as a nation and a denomination. Slavery is the setting of this book, the occasion for Paul writing, and he did not shy away from it, but challenged his brother lovingly and forcefully. 
Returning to our main question, loving people is costly. What cost are you willing to pay? Reconciliation is the goal of this book, of this letter. And reconciliation involves hard and uncomfortable conversations, conversations we must be willing to participate in because of love for our Lord and love for each other. This brings me to a, a difficult question in the New Testament. Should Paul have more explicitly condemned slavery? Some observations about Paul's situation. First of all, he was already a prisoner for the gospel at the time of this letter. Condemning slavery would have likely led to his personal demise and likely the demise of the fledgling church. Second, he establishes in this book and elsewhere the theological basis for destroying slavery. Third, in Philemon, he advocates for receiving a runaway slave no longer as a slave, but as a beloved brother on par with himself. He did not consider Anisimus to be anything less. Again, while in the first century, slavery was not race-based, certainly within the society, slaves were considered the bottom of the social barrel. And Paul did not consider Onesimus, this young man that he had brought to faith, to be of any less value than himself. He makes that extremely clear in this book. They have equal status as humans and equal status in Christ. Fourth, this letter places tacit but unavoidable pressure on Philemon to free Anisimus. There are some commentators in talking about this book that say, well, basically, Paul is sending Anisimus back to slavery, but he, he's telling Philemon, just treat him differently. Be nicer to him. And as I was studying it, I, I was listening to some, some, just weighing the different commentators there, and I do not think that you can take that away from this book. Paul is not leaving Philemon an option. Yes, he doesn't come out and say it directly and command him because he, that's an intentional choice not to railroad this, uh, this command. But he is putting unavoidable pressure and he is, without coming outright and saying it, making it extremely clear and very powerful appeal, a command really, that Philemon should release Anisimus. So let's get into the text again, looking at verse 15. For this, perhaps, is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever. It's interesting that he uses a very tactful language. He, this is the closest that he gets to talking about Anisimus running away. This is the awkward situation, the uncomfortable situation, but... Anisimus was a slave, and he ran away. Now he's talking to his, his slaves, the, this former slave's master. And this is the closest he talks about Anisimus running away. It's a very tactful allusion, and the reason is that he's interjecting himself into Philemon's household matters. Rather than railroading a specific, ac specific action and telling Philemon, I'm sending Anisimus back to you. He is a free man. You must free him. Treat him as a brother. He's no longer a slave. Legally speaking, you must free him. Rather than railroading him, leveraging his apostolic authority, he's teaching the foundational value. He wants to get to the heart. And from that place, then, he is exhorting Philemon to do the right thing. The main verb in this verse is take him back forever. The 
when I was looking at the definition <laughs> for the Greek term, it means to be paid in full and receive in full. If we were to ju just stop with this verse, we would get a very different message of what Paul is, is doing with this letter. Okay, just think, for this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, that you might receive him in full, be paid in full. And the idea then, if we were to just stop there, without the upcoming contrast, is that he would receive him back in full as a slave. Back in full, we're talking about property, we're talking about financial implications, that he would be paid in full, and, but had been taken away from him, Onesimus disappearing himself, would be restored to Philemon's household in full. But that's not where Paul leaves it. Verse 16, he provides a contrast, a strong, potent contrast, as he makes his actual appeal. This is the ask. He says, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but as more than a slave, as a beloved brother. The structural marker here, this, is, this contrast term, is the point at which the book hangs. Uketi is the Greek term, and it is translated appropriately as no longer. The passage that David was kind enough to read this morning from John 15, we find almost the same phrase. Our phrase here is no longer slaves. Receive him back no longer as a slave. So listen for that phrase as I read again. John 15, 12 to 15. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call, call you slaves. For the slave does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all things that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would re remain so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give to you. This I command you, that you love one another. Some observations about John's statements here. First, Jesus had told him that he was going to lay his, down his life for them. Previously in the narrative, he kept bringing this up, I'm going to die, I'm going to go to the cross, on the third day I'll be raised, and for whatever reason, the disciples just didn't get it. Nevertheless, Jesus had said this many times. And Jesus' point here, he says, slaves are ignorant of the Father's plans, but Jesus, the Son of God, had made that known to them. Thinking about the structure of the household, the head of the household would be the father and the master. If you were a slave, you were considered a tool in your master's hand, simply there to be told what to do and do it. You didn't get the big picture. You didn't get the explanation why. You didn't get to be part of the conversation, to understand really, okay, what is my master trying to accomplish? No, that was a privileged position for the son and perhaps the son's friends. And that's what Jesus says here, that you are no longer slaves, but you are friends because you know what's going on. I told you what's going on. And you're, you're part of this. Another observation, we are chosen by Christ to bear fruit. We can ask the Father whatever we wish in Jesus' name. That is an incredible promise, that we can take our requests to God in Christ's name, 
in relationship with God the Father through Christ. And in the context of the relationship, we can ask whatever we want, and it will be done for us, Jesus says. Then he also tells us to love one another. Some implications I want to draw out of here. First of all, slaves obey out of fear. Fear of punishment, fear of getting in trouble. Friends of Jesus, those of us who are friends of Jesus, we obey him out of love. Greater love has no one than this, that one laid down his life for his friends. That's That's a good statement. And then right after that, Jesus goes and lays down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. And there's a connection here. Yes, Jesus is our friend, but he's also still our Lord, and he is perfect, and he's good, and he laid down his life for us. What great love he has for us. We love him too because he loved us so much. So the the logical flow of thought here is Christ's love, he laid down his life for us, leads to our love for him. This love for him makes us want to obey him from our hearts, not out of fear. And then that leads to love for one another. Uh, One final implication from this cross-reference, remember our key phrase here is no longer slaves. Our hearts have been changed by Christ's sacrificial love, and we are no longer slaves. The other passage where we find almost this exact phrase, no longer slaves, potent spiritual statement about the spiritual, our spiritual identity, who we are at our core. Jesus talked about we are no longer slaves. Now Paul talks about it. Galatians 4, 4 to 7. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Some observations about this text. First, we are redeemed by God's son. This term redemption for someone who was a slave, or if you're part of the Roman culture and slavery was just all around you, redemption had a very concrete implication to redeem someone from slavery. Uh, You can think back to the Old Testament as well, that the people of Israel were slaves in Egypt under Pharaoh, and God redeemed them. He bought them out. He, By his mighty power, he brought them out of slavery to be a people for himself, and that's what he does for us. It's a very powerful term in the context of, uh, of cultures, both ancient Egypt and first century Roman Empire. Slavery was prevalent. To talk about being redeemed meant that you were being bought, that there was a real price on your life. You belonged to someone, and someone paid that price and took you out of that situation to give you freedom. And that's what Christ has done for us. We are redeemed by God's Son. Again, verses 4 and 5. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive adoption as sons. Second observation. We have been adopted as full heirs. Jesus, the perfect Son of God, eternity past, the Word made flesh. He created the world. 
He is God's heir. Everything that God has, his full authority, his full nature, Jesus has. And because we have been redeemed by the blood of this perfect son, the full heir, we have been adopted into God's family as full heirs with Jesus. That's incredible. We're not just brought into the family as underservants or as slaves, which would be appropriate. God made us, and he has the right to tell us what to do. And we should rightly be afraid of disobeying him. But we are no longer slaves. We are now sons. We are sons with Jesus. This truth is potently spoken into our hearts when we receive Christ, when we pledge our allegiance to him, when we arrange ourselves under his mastery, under his lordship. He sends his spirit into our hearts, crying out, Abba. Father, this is an intimate term. This is a a term of affection. And if you know him, you know what I'm talking about. In fact, if you know him, you know in encountering with some other believers, sometimes you've had this experience in in this conversation. Maybe there are powerful, you know, realistically within the worldly standards or language or culture, there might be barriers between you and this other believer, but somehow the way this person is, you know that the spirit of Christ in you, which says, Abba, Father, I belong to you. When you speak with your brother or sister in Christ, regardless of the barriers, you somehow know they have that same spirit in them. We have this connection. We have this fellowship. Who we are determines what we do. We are no longer slaves. That was our spiritual identity before. Remember last week, we talked about being slaves of sin. Every human has two options. One, we are slaves of sin, slaves to ourselves, or one, we accept the freedom in Christ. He paid the price. He paid the penalty. He redeemed us. The price was his own blood, his own life. And so, now we are in him. We belong to Jesus. We are no longer slaves. We are friends of Jesus. We obey him because of love. And we are full heirs of God the Father himself. We are not defined in worldly terms, whether growing up within the faith in God or or not, if you're more recently come to faith. We are not defined in worldly terms by race or by worldly status. In Christ, we are all equals. Colossians 3.11. Remember, Colossians was the partner letter. Colossians was the letter talking about issues of Christ's divinity to the Colossian church, which met in Philemon's house. So along with this letter to the Colossians, there's this personal letter to the household matter of Onesimus and Philemon, these letters were carried together by the man himself, by Onesimus. And in this letter, so Onesimus, the runaway slave, is carrying, one, the personal appeal from Paul to his former master, and two, this incredibly rich letter to the church with profound theological teaching. And Jesus, uh, Paul says in this letter, here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free. But Christ is all and in all. Why do I bring up these 
passages. Well, first of all, they're beautiful, but very applicable to us, and they remind us about our spiritual identity. There's a sharp spiritual contrast. Going back to the spiritual marker, uh, the structural marker, pardon me, grammatically speaking, no longer refers to, it's creating a contrast between our past former identity as slaves to ourselves, as slaves to sin. That's the past. No longer are you slaves. Now you are in Christ. There's a sharp contrast. And John and Paul both used this phrase, no longer slaves, with powerful force to talk about the change of our spiritual identity. The spiritual contrast in this phrase lends weight to the practical implications, the real-life implications of what Paul is asking Philemon to do in regard to Onesimus. If Philemon does what Paul asks, slavery will be only a thing of the past for Onesimus. Onesimus will be no longer a slave, but a brother. And let's talk about that word. Verse 16 again. No longer as a slave, but as more than a slave, as a beloved brother. Suddenly, Paul is starting to draw all these themes together. He's been talking about love. He's been talking about the brotherhood that we have in Christ. He's been talking about refreshment, about heart. He's been talking about all these different themes. Key themes, though, are brotherhood, the relationship, the reality of our relationship with each other, and what that looks like, which is love. Love. He's been talking about the love of Christ. He's been talking about his own love towards Philemon, the love between Paul and Philemon. And now he's talking about love between Philemon and Onesimus. So that's one theme, love, beloved brother. The other theme is brother. As you may recall, sibling relationships, at least ideally in, in Roman times, were not considered competitive. In our society, we think about Siblings being, having growing individual independence and with that competition, whether that's for their parents' attention or resources or within the world. Contrast is what we like to think about when we tend to think about, at least in, in our society. In ancient times, siblings were supposed to be collaborative. So with, if, if Paul is saying that this is your brother, receive Onesimus back as your brother, then suddenly the relationship is different. It's a collaborative, it's a collaborative relationship. Onesimus's shame would be Philemon's shame. They're brothers, remember? His honor would be Philemon's honor. If you were a good brother or sister, then your siblings' successes, their honor, their well-being would be tied to yours. You would be continuously promoting them pumping them up because if they were elevated, you had the same name, you were the same family, by association, you'd be elevated as well. On the other hand, if they so happened to fall into slavery or go back and be slaves again, then that would be a shameful thing. Who would send their brother back in slavery? Who would make their brother be a slave again? It simply wouldn't make sense. The sibling relationship, several philosophers of the time said, would be the closest relationship possible between people in Greco-Roman times. Marriage and, and all this had complicated dynamics, perhaps, and husbands didn't necessarily view their, their, their wives as equals. But just, again, another harsh reality of the time. 
And so the sibling relationship, whether that was between brothers or sisters, was actually thought to be much more close and trusting and collaborative. So for the early church, for the Christians, to be using these terms, brother, it's a powerful term. It's not just, hey man, like, we're buddies and, you know, I like you and you like me, but we don't really know each other. We're not really that connected. It's not that kind of like, hey, what's up, bro? No, this is, hey, brother, we're made of the same stuff. Your well-being is my well-being. My pain is your pain, and I know you're there for me. Receive him back as a beloved brother. To me, he continues, receive him back as a beloved brother, especially to me. A little side note he throws in there. Could Philemon really re-enslave Paul's brother? If Paul considered Onesimus his brother, would he really put him back into slavery? That simply doesn't make sense. Especially to me. But how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord? The point of talking about the relationship in the flesh and in the Lord, Philemon and Onesimus had a pre-existing, a prior earthly relationship. That relationship was master-slave in the same household, but not family, not equals. Now Paul is redefining the relationship to brother. This is now, yes, within the same household, the pre-existing relationship, but they are no longer master-slave, but brother-brother. They are not only family, but they are peers within the family. God is their shared father in Christ. They are brothers. They are equals. The term in the flesh, I think, refers, I believe, refers to this earthly relationship. And so Paul is saying, he is your brother now in the flesh. In concrete reality, in the everyday harsh realities of Roman slavery, he's your brother now. He's he's not your slave. They have the same master, and that is Jesus. And in the Lord, that refers to that that they have the same, this is the spiritual basis for this earthly restructuring is their relationship in Lord. They, they have been changed at their core. That goes back to John 15 and Galatians 4. We are no longer slaves, but we are friends of Jesus. We are no longer slaves, but we are heirs of God. Onesimus is no longer uh, a slave to himself, but he is an heir of God, a friend of Jesus. How could you treat your brother the heir of God, a friend of Jesus, and bring him back into your household as a slave. There's no way. There's no way. He continues, Paul continues. So, if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. My colloquial uh, translation of this might be, amen. If I'm your bro, he's your bro. The partnership here is the Greek word koinonia, which you all may be familiar with, and that is a common theme throughout this book, fellowship, relationship. The idea here is Paul saying, Philemon, man, if our relationship is real, if you and I really do have this deep sense of being together, of sharing the profound experience of belonging to Christ, then welcome him as you would welcome me. Receive him back 
The Greek word there is proslampano, which is defined as to extend a welcome, receive into one's home or circle of acquaintances. Remember, this is the Middle East. Uh, by God's grace and, and kindness of you all, along with the other, the other folks, we're going to get to go to Turkey at the, towards the end of the month to work with and encourage Dan Gutierrez. He's a missionary that we support that came from us. I, I know many of you, many of you all know him well, actually. And in that context, the cultural context has a strong emphasis on hospitality. Here, we might invite each other over sometimes, but there, hospitality is a core cultural value. You spend time with pe people. It, it's actually kind of an honor. When someone wants to come to your house, then you just stop everything, you drop everything, and you spend time focusing on them. That's what Paul is asking Philemon to do with Onesimus. Thinking about our greeting of each other earlier, thinking about what Paul is asking Philemon to do, Romans 15, 7 reads, Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. This is re-emphasizing their equality as brothers. Welcome him as you would welcome me. Philemon would want to receive Paul. They had a close relationship. Paul had led him to Christ. Philemon was a loving man. He loved all the saints. And in that context of that love, I'm sure that one of the main manifestations of that love in that cultural context would have been hospitality. Just welcome, come into my home. I'm going to put everything aside. I'm going to give you some, some dried fruit and some nuts and I'll make some tea for you. Paul finally would want to receive Paul with honor, with love, with affection, with warm welcome. As I was thinking about Philemon receiving Anismus back as a, as a brother, I thought about the story of two brothers that Jesus tells in Luke 15. The prodigal son and the elder son. If Philemon does not receive Anasimus back as a brother, he will be acting like the elder son. You all may remember the story. This young man comes to his dad one day and says, I know you're not dead yet, but I want your stuff. And his right as the younger, as the younger son was to one third of the property. He says, I want my part of the inheritance now, dad. I don't care that you're still living. Shockingly, the dad goes out, liquidates a third of his property and gives the money to his son. He takes off and goes into a distant land. And there he, he just spends all the money as fast as he can, as hard as he can on hard living all the different vices that you could imagine. He just indulges himself until the money's gone. And he finds himself at the bottom of the social structure. He's eating with pigs. Within the Jewish context that Jesus was teaching this story, that's as low as could be. Pigs were unclean. You hang out with pigs, you're unclean. And he's eating the pig's food. That's all he has to eat. And he thinks, wow, this is horrible. Even the slaves in my father's house had better status than me. They were... My, my dad took care of his slaves. He fed them. He treated them like people. Let me go back to my dad. I'll go on my hands and knees. I'll beg forgiveness. And maybe he'll receive me back in the slave because that's going to be better than eating pig slop. And that's where we pick up the story. He arose and came to his father. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion. Remember last week that 
that phrase, Splonknon, guts. The young man's father saw him, felt the stirring deep within his core. My son's come back. So he jumped up and he ran in a very undignified way and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf. Let's have a party. Let's have a real celebration. Kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son was dead and he is alive again. He was lost and he is found. And they began to celebrate. Now, as his older son, that's the father's older son, was in the field. And as he, he was in the field and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come. Your father has killed the fattened calf because he received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes. You killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this your brother was dead and he is alive. He was lost and he is found. If Philemon refuses to receive Anisimus back, he's going to be closing his heart. Remember we talked about if you close off your compassion from your brothers and sisters. Do you really understand what Jesus did for you? If you close that compassion that should be provoked, remember the same spirit that lives in you, that speaks to you. Abba, Father, you've received this incredible gift of grace. Jesus' blood poured out for you. If you receive this, if you understand the forgiveness that you have in Christ, how can you, how can you then, the same spirit is speaking to your brother or sister, that you have this gnarly conflict with. They did wrong things to you. They hurt you. But if you close your heart, you'll be like the older brother too. I think that Paul must have been thinking about this story too. And it's pretty likely Philemon was familiar with the story as well. How could he be like the older brother? No, better, better to participate in the father's love, to rejoice. His brother had come home. Again, we're talking about beloved brother. We're not talking about slaves. Don't bring him back as a slave. That's what the younger brother thought the best he could hope for would be to come in as a slave. And again, that was better than his situation back in the faraway country. But no, the father brings him back up, reinstates him as a son, and that's what God has done for us. There is cost with this. Love is costly. What cost are you willing to pay? Paul doesn't avoid this issue. Verse 18, if he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it. To say nothing of you owe me your very own self. The likelihood 
is that Onesimus had probably stolen from his master to fund his escape. Paul is here taking ownership of that debt. The cost of writing off the damages of what Onesimus had caused, Onesimus caused damage, that had a specific dollar amount. Remember, Onesimus was considered within that society to be property, and taking himself away, plus probably taking other stuff, had a specific dollar amount. The implication here is that Forgiving people and reconciling means letting go of very real hurt and damages. When forgiveness happens, the forgiver pays the cost of forgiveness, lets the person off the hook, releases them. Asking for forgiveness, if you've done something wrong to someone, is asking the person that you've hurt to absorb the cost of what you've done to them. And that's why it's such a sobering thing to, to humble yourself it's necessary, it's important, it's appropriate within the context of reconciliation. But we have to understand that when we ask forgiveness for wrongs that we've done to each other, we're asking the person that we've wronged to absorb the hurt. How can we ask that? Well, trusting that Christ has forgiven them and that they've received that forgiveness, God received a much greater cost, a much greater hurt. Paul is putting his money where his mouth is. But remember last week, didn't we find out that Philemon owes Paul help? Remember, friends don't let friends rot in Roman jail, especially jail in the cause of Christ. But instead of going back to that theme of imprisonment and Philemon owes him help with his friend, Paul talks about a different kind of debt here. He says, if we're talking about debts, just saying, you owe me, you owe me you. And the verb he uses is talking about, you still owe me. This is an outstanding debt. The, the debt of, of love and of gratitude and really in this situation of obedience that Philemon owes to his spiritual father for bringing him to Christ is himself. He received his life in Christ through Paul. And Paul is putting his own relational capital to, on the line to advocate for Anismus. Now remember, Paul's, Paul was no freeloading preacher. He, he didn't just go around taking advantage of people Financially, while well, saying, here, I'm giving you something spiritual, you know, you're, you're free in Christ now, give me your money. He was no prosperity gospel millionaire evangelist. He worked hard throughout his ministry. Maybe not at this point when he was in jail, but he was a tent maker, and he really sought to not be a financial burden. And with very limited dependent resources that he had in prison, he was putting that on the line. So his relational capital had, was financially legitimate. He writes, I'm writing this with my own hand. This is a sensitive matter, and I, I'm committing to you. If you need to receive restitution, I will do that on Onesimus' behalf. Yes, brother, he says, and he calls Philemon brother. 